This week's episode is PBS news anchor Amna Nawaz. She used to work here at ABC, and I've got to be honest, this might be one of my favorite episodes. She has such a unique perspective. Her parents were born in Pakistan. She was raised here in the U.S. as a Muslim, attended an Episcopalian school, and then she married a Catholic whom she met through a Jewish friend. On this episode, Amna expresses her frustration in how Islam is interpreted. Here's Amna Nawaz on Journeys of Faith. Full disclosure, we work together at ABC. Yep. Our paths rarely crossed. Yeah. And we were just talking about this. While we know one another professionally, personally, we're like, we know one another through Instagram. Yes. Which is to say we know what we choose to share on exactly. Instagram. In so I know your highlight lives. reel and you know my highlight exactly. reel, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get beyond that today. So you would describe yourself as a Muslim American. Yep. Your family's from Pakistan, correct? Yes. Okay, so take me back. Your family's born in Pakistan. Yep. Are you first generation? You were born here? I am first generation American. So both my parents were born and raised in Pakistan. My dad came to the States in the early 70s, actually to go to journalism school. So journalism's kind of in my blood a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my sisters and I were all born and raised here. So we're the first generation Americans in our families. And we did this thing where, because we were the only ones in the States, just my parents and my sisters and I, we would go back to Pakistan every summer. So we spoke Urdu in the house. Uh, you know, we practiced all our traditions and all of that in our house. And then we lived normal American lives. And then every summer we'd pack up and we'd move to Pakistan for two or three Did months. Did you feel like you had like these two lives that were you were living totally. parallel lives? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually a very useful skill as a child, I think, to to know from a very early age the world is as big as you want to make it or as small as you want to make it. And my parents were insistent that we understand you are, you know, a speck of sand in this beach, and the world is this big, enormous place, and you shouldn't be scared of it. So get out there and live and experience. And they made sure we visited new places every time we go to Pakistan, too. Like, we'd stop off in different countries. And so they did a really incredible job of making sure we knew that our horizons were as, as broad as we wanted to make them. Mm-hmm. You talk about some of the traditions that you would practice at home. Yeah. Tell me about some of those. So it's funny. You know, I look back now, and I guess I could say they were rooted in faith, but they weren't presented to us in faith. Our faith, Islam, was always just sort of like a foundational assumption. It wasn't something we talked about a lot. Like, it was just, yeah, you're Muslim. It's not a big deal. What I realize now, looking back, is that that faith was actually more like the moral code that we were raised Mm -hmm. in, right? Like, being a good Muslim meant being a good person. It meant that you recognized that you are privileged and blessed and fortunate, and it's your responsibility to take care of other people who aren't as privileged and blessed. It means that you uh, recognize that humility is important in life, that you stay humble as you as you grow older, that you take care of your community, that you treat other people the way you want to be treated, all those foundational things that were presented to us as just like, this is what it is to be a good Muslim. It's not that big a deal. Be a mm-hmm. decent human being. So a lot of the traditions and things we practice were built around the faith, like big holidays. Um, there's one called Eid, which yeah, comes. Yeah, tell me about some of the big Muslim holidays. Yeah, so there's Eid actually comes twice a year. One is at the end of the month of Ramadan, which is the month of fasting. And the other is at the traditional time of the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca, the time that most people take that, that journey during the year. They change according to the lunar calendar. So it's all based on moon spotting. Like you have to to spot the full moon. And there's all, you know, community leaders who will do that for you and kind of tell you when it's happening. But it means it's sometimes celebrated on different days. So it might be on one day in one part of the world and like the next day in another. Um, But it changes every year. So during the summer, I remember growing up and we didn't fast growing up because we played sports. So you didn't fast during Ramadan? I did not. No, No, when you fast during Ramadan, you're... 
You're not fasting the whole month, are you? You're or fasting she- sunrise to sunset. Okay. So in the winter, it's not that bad because the day is short. Mm-hmm. In the summer, oh. that stinks. Yeah. It's a really long day and it's no water, no food. And is there something in conjunction with that? Are you praying X amount of times per day or is it just the fasting? Yeah. I mean, I think like the rules, there's no, there's no rules, right? Like mm-hmm. fasting is just, it's a deprivation as a form of recognition, right? Yes. Of all the things that you are lucky enough to have and and being cognizant of the fact that not everyone has them. And it brings you to a place of understanding and, you know, sympathy and empathy and all those things that when, when you suddenly take away something that you take for granted every single day, it, it makes you take pause, right? Mm-hmm. So we didn't do it growing up mainly because my parents said, you girls play sports year-round, you're, you're busy, it's not good for you falling asleep or wanting to pass out during the day. So they were insistent that we wouldn't fast. And I didn't start fasting until much later in life. Um, Because there's other rules around it, too. Like if you're traveling, you don't have to. If you're pregnant or you're sick, you don't have to. Uh, But the rules kind of depend on where you are in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Some parts of the world and some countries, they're very, very strict about it. People will go to great lengths to show how much they're suffering and and how hard it is. And in other parts, it's more loosely defined. What does your Muslim faith mean to you as an adult? It's changed and it hasn't. It's funny because I realized when I was little my faith was, like I said, just kind of a part of who we were. And it was a small part of who we were. You know, there were so many other parts of us that we talked about and were celebrated and held up that being Muslim was not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. The older I got and the more other people had questions about my faith, I realized it was a bigger deal to them. And then it became a bigger deal to me because it was sort of incumbent on me to have to answer a lot of those questions. Were you ever ostracized because of your faith as a child? Never. And you know what's funny? We were actually raised— And where were you raised? In Virginia. In Virginia. Yes. So uh, we were basically one of the only Muslim families in our community. And most of my friends growing up were white. Most of my friends growing up were Christian. And we had some Jewish friends, some Hindu friends. I remember I had a Baha'i teacher in one of my classes. Like, we were totally aware of other faiths, but it was a majority Christian community. And we were one of the few Muslim families there. Now, we had a whole other community of people who were basically like family to us. My parents, really close friends, people who'd emigrated at this, around the same time, and their kids and kind of like cousins here. And most of them were Muslim, and we celebrated community holidays with them, would have dinner parties. And so that was like family here. Day in and day out, we were basically the minorities. It didn't really matter. It was never that big a deal. And I'll tell you what's even crazier. My parents sent us to an Episcopalian school. It was an all-girls school because it was the best education they could find. And I look back on that now, and I realize for them, that took enormous strength and courage. courage. It really did. Yeah. It was the idea that what they had taught us was secure enough that they didn't need to worry about sending us out into a world where that would be challenged or that would not be what we were surrounded with. Like they knew it was a strong Mm -hmm. enough foundation. So we went to chapel every Wednesday. You know, the school administrators actually said to my parents, oh, we have chapel every Wednesday, but they don't have to go. The girls don't have to go. My mom was like, why why wouldn't they go? Like, what do they have to be afraid of? So I sat through chapel every Wednesday. incredible. I learned the Our Father. I sang the hymns. And it was just when everyone would bow their heads to say Christian prayers, I would just quietly say, Muslim prayer to myself. And that was it. And I feel like this is such an element that we're missing in our society right now to 
have the knowledge, the depth of knowledge of other people's religions yeah. and respect it yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And, and also understand that like coming into contact with uh-huh. it and bumping up against it doesn't necessarily undermine no, not your own faith. Like if that if that's all it takes to undermine or shake your faith, then your foundational faith is probably not as strong as you think it is. Right. And you should be worried about it. Maybe. Yeah. I love Maybe that your parents were confident enough in what they had established at the home. Yeah. They weren't worried that you would waver at all. Not at all. You did veil growing up. Mm-mm. You don't veil now. Mm-mm. I know in Christianity and even Judaism, you have different like denominations. Yeah. Do you have different denominations? So there's, there's different sects for mm-hmm. sure, right? Most people hear about Sunni Muslims and mm-hmm. Shia Muslims. The, yep. the decision to veil, to wear a hijab or not, is a choice. And it was always presented to us as a choice. Um, it is not taught that way in a lot of cultures right. in a lot of countries, and that is the shame of it. But it is absolutely a choice. If you go back to the text, if you go back to the original way in which the idea of modesty is presented, it's supposed to be for both women and men. Mm. The idea of, uh, you know, when it's imposed on women, when girls are forced to veil, I have a huge problem with that. That's something that we in Islam need to work on. Um, And that's a bigger problem with the way that men in charge of Muslim communities impose the faith and rules on women in the community. But it's a choice. It's a foundational choice. It was always presented to us that way. It must frustrate you because we have, especially um, in the Western cultures, we have our own interpretations of what Islam looks like and what Muslims look like based upon our own encounters with them and what we hear in the news. That has to frustrate you that there's almost this preconceived notion of who Muslims are. And it's, as you said, those that the women that don't have the choice per se, based in those, um, you know, select few countries where it's probably imposed on them. That has to frustrate you because that's not what your faith is to you, but that's how it's interpreted by so many Americans and so many in Western culture. It's an enormous frustration. And I want to be clear about this, too. The choice to cover or not also extends to women who choose to cover. And I have a number of friends who choose to cover because that's the way in which they practice their faith. And it's a beautiful choice. And it's one that I completely respect. It's just not mine. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the foundational misconceptions about Islam is that all Muslims are the same or everyone practices it the same. And the truth of the matter is that Islam has probably even more diversity than any other monotheistic religion. How so? In terms of culture, in terms of uh, traditions, in terms of the way in which it's been kind of woven into the communities, Uh, Islam goes back hundreds of years here in the States. It goes back thousands of years across communities across the world. And the ways in which it's practiced now are are sort of more a result of of the cultures in which it's been growing and it's it's manifest itself more than anything else. So Mm -hmm. you can go to a quote unquote Muslim community in one part of the world and and it's practiced in one way or not even really apparent that it's being practiced there. And you go to another community in another part of the world and it's completely different. Mm-hmm. And that's here and that's true in the States. Oh, that's too. true with Christianity. That's true with 100%. Judaism. I mean, you can have extreme Christians. You can have, you know, extreme far, far right leaning, you know, uh, Jews as well. Yeah. So it's just the way that it's interpreted. Yeah. How do you practice your Muslim faith as an adult? Like, what do you do? How do you interpret that? What does it mean to you? So my faith has always been and this is the way it was taught to me. It's not about what you do. It's about how you live. 
So it was never taught to me that, like, you have to do these things every day. You have to pray five times a day. You have to cover your head. You have to fast during Ramadan. The idea was these are the core foundational beliefs. These are the, This is the moral code in which we're raising you. Stick to it as closely as you can and be a good person. Mm-hmm. So I don't pray five times a day because we didn't go to a mosque growing up. Actually, you have it seems like you have a little more of a liberal interpretation. Probably, I guess it's what people would call liberal. The funny thing is, this is just the community we grew up in. Mm. So to us, it wasn't liberal or conservative. It was just this is our Islam. This is the way we practice mm. our faith. The funny thing is, among Muslim Americans, fewer than half actually go regularly to a mosque. It's basically the same as like the Christian community. So a lot of times we focus on like what happens in the mosques, what happens in those communities. And those are still great centers of community for a lot of these families and, and people who practice Islam in America. But it's not the truth for the majority mm-hmm. of Muslim Americans. Yeah, a lot of Christians just go on Easter and Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the high holidays. Muslims are no different. Mm-hmm. So we didn't regularly go to a mosque. Uh, and, and for that reason, I, I don't go to one now. Um, we um, we my parents didn't pray five times a day. They they prayed you know when they needed to. We prayed privately. My mother and father always taught us you don't have to go somewhere or be in a certain place to pray. You pray when you need to. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be an incredible source of relief and resilience. Right? You can want to pray before a test or something. You do that. It was just you, you do can it pray when you before need the to. Podcast. If you need day. to. Yeah. Yeah. I actually said a prayer right before I walked in here. You're like please. <laughs> So I, you know, the actual physical practices and traditions have never been that important. So you don't to me. go to mosque right now. I don't. No. I don't. I also have a bigger problem with a lot of the mosques because they insist on separating the men and the women in a way that treats women uh, pos- in a secondary way. Like yes. they either put the women behind or they put the women in a lesser than space. Second class. So I am looking. I'll put this out there. I'm looking for a mosque where men and women are allowed to pray side by have side. Have you heard of a mosque that does that? There are some. Yeah, there definitely are some. There's actually a woman's only mosque in Los Angeles. Oh, I love so that. So if I move out there, I got I got my mosque. Yeah, but, but right yeah. now you are in the nation's <laughs> capital working for PBS. So unless they want yes. to transfer you to L.A., <laughs> I'm not looking to do that, to be clear. So you've been married for how long? I've been married since 2010. Okay. Your husband works for the New York Times still? Not anymore. No, he's also a journalist, but right now he's a full-time father to our girls. And your girls are how old? My girls are five and three. And what are their names? It's crazy to say, by the way. Um, My older girl is Karam, and my younger girl is Lena. Those are beautiful names. Thank you. So when he first met you, mm-hmm. what is what was his faith background? So he was raised in a Catholic household. Okay. Um, and a practicing Catholic household. You know, they regularly went to Mass. Um, he was raised in all the traditions and, uh, uh, yeah. And when the two of you met, mm-hmm. was that ever an issue? You're you know, Muslim, he's Catholic? It wasn't. And actually, our, our dear friend who is Jewish introduced us and then officiated our wedding. So we joke that it took a Jewish person to bring together a Catholic and a Muslim. And at our wedding, we had prayers from every faith. So we, we covered our bases. Yeah, you it did. Was like, you really did. We're good to go. So how are you raising your two girls? Aware. That That is that, yeah, aware and open-hearted. Those are the two things that are sort of guiding principles right now. Because look, we recognize we are adherents of our faith largely out of circumstance and luck and fate, right? Like you're born into these families. You find a reason to believe in these fates and a reason to stick with them. Our girls have the benefit of being born into a family that has two fates represented, right? And so we want them to learn about those fates. 
We want them to see what speaks to them and what doesn't. And then we want them to make a choice. So you're exposing them to the to the different faiths yep. right now instead of giving them an atheistic yep. type of um, childhood. We are teaching them mommy's Muslim. And during Ramadan, she's fasting. And, uh, you know, on Eid, we'll go celebrate with our community and our family in this way. And daddy's Christian. And so we're going to celebrate Christmas. And, um, you know, we teach them about the Bible and we teach them about the Quran. And when, you know, they're still so young. So a lot of those questions have yet to fully form, but they're getting the language Mm -hmm. and they're getting the understanding that religion is about love. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will tell you that these things are totally different from each other and that they fight each other. And that's just not true. These are all just different ways that you can love other people. So both of you have really honored your own faith traditions and your own faith beliefs. Mm -hmm. He hasn't converted no. To Islam, and you haven't converted to Catholicism. No. And neither of us would ever ask that and it of each works. other. It totally works. Yeah. yeah. I, look, only because I think the things that are we share in common, we're grounded in faith to some degree, mm-hmm. right? Love for one another, respect for one another, a responsibility to your community, a recognition of your privilege and, and, and fortune in life. These are guiding principles for every faith. For every faith, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, the ways in which they overlap are stunning, and basic and so vastly overlooked mm-hmm. all the time. But they're there. And the same things that we were taught growing up as part of our faith, but also just part of who we were in our incredible families, are the same things that brought us together. And they're the same things in which we're raising our girls now. Mm-hmm. I'm very sensitive to the fact that, yes, I am Christian, but I want to know more about other faiths. I think that it's important, especially in this climate, to have these conversations yeah. and sit across the table from people that we may not see eye to eye on everything, but we can at least have a discussion where we respect one another. Yeah. And I remember uh, season one of the podcast after I interviewed Reza Aslan, yeah. who is a religious scholar and he is a Muslim. He's married to uh, a Christian. Yeah. What I was really surprised about uh, after talking with Reza and talking with you are the many similarities between yeah. Christianity and Islam. Mm-hmm. And I didn't I didn't realize that until I dug and in. And you know what's funny? I think most Muslims you talk to would recognize, especially in America, because when you're in the minority and you're sort of forced to some degree to become familiar and mm-hmm. find a way to empathize and relate to the majority culture around you, I saw things in Christianity. I see things in Judaism. I see things in, in a lot of different faiths and cultures that aren't my own that I can relate to, right, mm-hmm. that speak to me in some way. There aren't that many Muslims, particularly in America. A lot of us around the world, but there aren't that many in America. And so I think a lot of people here have a very strong opinion based on things they've heard or things they may have seen in a very narrow way, but they've never actually met a Muslim. Right. And when you meet each other, you realize, like, we're not all that exciting. Like, (laughs) we are Basically just the same and just as boring and just as complicated and just mm. as average as, as everybody else. You're, you're not boring and you're not average. I at mean, least I, I don't think you are. At least <laughs> per your Instagram account, you're definitely not boring and average. That's the highlight reel, That's though. the highlight That's reel, the though. <laughs> but, you know, the, the similarities, too, you know, we're not just talking about the guiding foundational principles, but the similarities, too, that, you know, Muslims believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was born of a virgin, right? Yes. That he's going to come again. Mm-hmm. And there, We recognize all the same prophets. All the same, all the same people in your book. Mm-hmm. They're in my book too. Right. We just end with Muhammad. It's just that Muhammad was the last prophet. How do you believe you're going to get to heaven? <sighs> you know, I don't think about that much. <laughs> unless I ask you. Really, truly, I um, 
Well, what do what do Muslims? How do so Muslims here, believe they'll get to heaven? That's that's how I should have prefaced the question. Well, this goes back to uh, this goes back to an earlier question you asked about, like how my faith now is mm-hmm. different than my faith when I was a kid, and I think I have a lot more questions now. Obviously, like as a kid, it's sort of accepted it is what it is, and I have more questions now because my faith has it's come to play a different role in my life now and it's been it's been sort of like a constant at the very very high highs and the very very low lows so in in this job we, we see the worst of everything right and in those moments i find that i go to my faith cuz i'm like this is the place i'm going to go to because it gives me some strength it gives me a reason to go it on it centers you it center it grounds me mm-hmm. yes and in the very, very high moments, like when my girls were born, I I didn't know I didn't know that joy. I didn't know what that was like, and I couldn't find another place to put it except in faith. Just like a, a thank you to God because it was just too much. And so that's where I found my faith comes in now. I have a lot of questions about a lot of other stuff. Like what? Look, I think the books on which a lot of people rely and cherry pick phrases, and this goes for all faiths. It it can be misleading and it can be confusing because those were books written at a mm-hmm. certain time in a certain context. We are not there. We are not those people. And the faith that we have today has to be something that sustains us today. It has to be something that 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 works for us today. Mm-hmm. So I will read the book. I, I find phrases in there that speak to me. I find stories in there that speak to me. I never go by literal translations of the text. I feel like the faith is supposed to be there to hold you up in those low times and to sustain you in every other time and to have a place to put that joy in the high times. And and you put out uh, what you want to get back from it. And I think it's a very basic kind of understanding and a basic concept of faith for me, which is that it, it's a way to love. It's mm-hmm. a way for me to get through difficult days and it's a way for me to put joy on the good days. Right after this break... I'm just going to share something with us that brings her to tears. What are some of the more hurtful things that people have said (laughs) about Muslims and Islam? You need only consult my Twitter feed (laughs) to see some of the things. It must be brutal. People say it's not great. It's not great. And it's based in ignorance and it's based in unfamiliarity. And I think I have to tell myself that over and over again, because a lot of the questions people have are based on um, coming into contact with the religion in the worst of possible ways, right? Which is that someone has said that they're doing something awful in the name of a faith. People ask how I can call myself a Muslim um, because all they know is terrible things about the religion. And they say, how, how could you identify with something like this? Um, people will, uh, they'll say racist, um, Islamophobic things. A lot of it has to do with my ethnicity more than my faith. Like people will say I should be deported. I've had people say I, someone needs to Dylan roof me. Oh gosh. A lot of it, I think it's, you know, it's tied up in faith. It's tied up in the fact that I'm a visible, I'm a brown woman. Um, I'm comfortable talking about a lot of these things. And I think the fact that I exist just that fact offends a lot of people. Um, and so I don't look at those very mm-hmm. often. But every now and again, you just make sure there's nothing too awful being said. Or, or if Twitter someone asks a question. So toxic. I feel my, my blood pressure rise. It can be bad. But I will say some people 
come to me with a legitimate question. What kind of questions do they have? So I had someone ask once about veiling, about why I didn't veil. And I'm happy to respond to someone to say, look, here's why. It's a choice, and it's a choice that this is how I choose to practice my faith. I am totally cool with people having questions. And this gets back to your earlier question about like what my faith means to me now. I talk about it way more now than I ever did because people have a lot more questions. And I'm happy to fill the void Mm -hmm. with information and my own perspective, also with the understanding that I am not speaking for every Muslim out there. No, but do you feel in some senses, because you're in you're you're in the spotlight right now. You're working at PBS, you're a correspondent, you're an anchor, you're you're kind of in in many regards, you're you are carrying the torch for Muslim women right now. Do you feel a certain responsibility? Do you feel like you are an ambassador for the faith? I feel a responsibility to myself and to my family to be honest about the way that I practice my faith and what my faith means to me. But I also have to stress the caveat that I in no way represent every Muslim woman. And I know that because I am friends with a lot of Muslim women who practice their faith very differently than me. And that doesn't make them any more or less Muslim or more or less valid. Um, I will say, I think because so many people have misconceptions, I think it's important to speak out. And that's why I've embraced my faith and I've talked more about it and I more openly identify as Muslim American because the people who are speaking for it now do not represent the majority of Muslims. And there was a part of me for a while that said, oh, maybe this isn't the right faith for me then. Maybe if this is what where people are going with it, I, that doesn't speak to me. This, this can't be my faith. But then I realized, no, I'm not wrong. You're wrong. You're ignorant. Like, this is my house. Mm-hmm. You get out. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel that's the responsibility I feel is to talk about it in an honest way, in a way that makes clear to people I'm not an academic on the subject. I don't feel like I have to be an academic on the subject. I am free to practice my faith in the exact same way that every other American is. Do you feel the Islamophobia right now? 100%. You know, what's awful is it's getting worse. Mm. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Why do you think it's getting worse? Because I know it is. Because the uh, the attacks are getting worse. There are more attacks every year because the... When you say attacks, are we talking about like the attack recently in New Zealand? Are we talking about those kind of attacks or are we talking about personal attacks? Those are the worst of the worst. So what okay. happened in New Zealand is at that end of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. The everyday kind of, I'll say low level, but I'm sure it's no less hurtful, physical attacks on mosques, on community centers, um, kids reporting being bullied, um, the language that's used. And I think, you know, for someone who was raised in a household where we were taught that words matter, like be very careful with your words, the rhetoric is worse now than it's ever been. And it's more widespread than it's ever been. It, It comes from elected officials. It is not condemned immediately in the same way that a lot of other kind of hate speech and, you know, phobic language in some Mm -hmm. kind is. In some ways, Islamophobia has become kind of like the acceptable bigotry of our time, where you can say horrible things about Muslims and it's not immediately disqualifying. That has to be so hurtful and frustrating. It's awful. It's, it's all, and it hurts my heart for all of my friends who have to send their kids out into the world every day, whose daughters may cover, who are more visible and vulnerable in a lot of ways. 
you know, it's like any other community, you've got emails circulating and your Facebook thread is kind of heavily populated by the people that you know and the stories that people share from time to time about waking up and finding a note on their car um, saying that, you know, they should be they should be killed and they're going to burn in hell mm. uh, about people who go to their mosques or community centers and find things scrawled on the side about girls who have their hijabs ripped off. It's it's just you can't. You can't imagine what people go through every day just to practice their faith. Mm. Setting aside, by the way, Sikh men, men who cover, you know, non-Muslim men, adherents of the Sikh faith who wear turbans. And because of that ignorance, because of that lack of understanding, they get wrapped up. Right. They don't see the differentiation. It's so toxic and it's bad for everyone. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just for the Muslim community. It's bad for everyone. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Thank you. I mean – my heart hurts too and i don't i mean what can we do what what's how do we solve this where does it does it does it come from the top how do we there's just we should have religious freedom regardless of what religion we adhere to and yeah. we all own a responsibility what can i as a christian do what can my friends who are jewish do what can my friends uh, who are atheists do what can we do i know you're <laughs> crying right now but i it's I, I just I can't imagine the pain that you're going through right now just to practice your religion. You know, it's and I it's not that hard for me, I should say. Right. Mm-hmm. I am I, I don't cover. Um, I think because people know I'm Muslim because I'm a public figure, I may get some comments and stuff on social media. It's, but it's not that hard for me. I, I have a platform. I have a microphone. I get to sit here and talk to you about it. Right. I'm protected in a lot of ways. There are so many vulnerable communities out there who don't have a platform, who don't have protection, who don't feel like they can even report it to their local authorities because they're not sure what would actually be done about it. You know, there was um, so immediately after the New Zealand attacks, there's uh, a local mosque by my home here in Virginia or down in Virginia. And my neighbor is a first responder. He's a fireman. And he got a call from one of the community leaders and they said, would, would you mind helping us arrange for some protection? We want to have prayer services tomorrow, but we're scared. And um, so he called some of his law enforcement uh, friends and they said, you know, we're stretched thin. There are so many mosques and community centers around here. We, we're not sure we have someone to send to this particular place. And so he put on his dress blues. He's, he's a fireman. And he put on his dress blues and he had his son put on his dress blues. And they just went and they stood. They just went and they stood mm-hmm. just so there was some show of force, some some show of like, we're Compassion. here with you. We're here to protect you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, it was such a small thing, but it was such a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I can never say thank you to him enough. I can never say thank you to all the people out there who put themselves between those vulnerable communities and the people who wish to do them harm. But at the end of the day... I am a I'm a strict adherent to the idea that love and truth will win the day. Mm-hmm. And I just think the more we talk about it and the more we fill that void of misunderstanding and ignorance and unfamiliarity with real people and details and information, it's going to be okay. You know, I right after the New Zealand attack, I noticed that I think you had tweeted that absent in a lot of the conversations was an actual Muslim. Yeah. <laughs> um which 
seems a, it, it's incomprehensible. It's, it's pretty incomprehensible. It is wild. But that's a lot of that's on the media. So because you are not only a a female Muslim, but you are a member of the media, how did you interpret the coverage after those horrific attacks in New Zealand? You know, it's hard. I, I don't get quite the scope. I, I do as if I'm just sitting back and watching. I know what I do. I know what we do. I know what my colleagues do. I am lucky to have people like you, people like my colleagues here, people like my for, former colleagues at NBC and MSNBC who I know come to work with full hearts and clear eyes and want to put good out into the world. And I think any place that people fall flat, it's not because they're intentionally doing so. It's it's just because they don't know better in some cases. Like the lack of Muslim voices early morning on some of the panels. Is that just sheer ignorance? I think okay? it's just maybe you don't know who to call. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I said, there aren't that many of us. Um, maybe there isn't someone on your speed dial right away that you can say, hey, come by. I think as the day went on and the story went on over the, the, the rest of the day, the next day it got better. But it takes a second to get there. Uh, and, and that's a question of representation. That's a question of who you know. I think we all have to do better and be better. And that's not just with the Muslim community. It's with a lot of other communities we cover where we don't have firsthand experience and firsthand contacts, you mm-hmm. know. That, that's on us. We have to do better. Well, we have to be a little more introspective and see outside of ourselves in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. we have to be a little bit more empathetic in the communities that we cover. What do you think about, because now we have the first two female Muslims in Congress with yeah. Omar Ilhan mm-hmm. and Rashida Tlaib. Yeah. I think a bigger issue, too, or maybe a bigger question is whether or not there are enough Muslim women in prominent places, mm-hmm. um, in places of influence. And so in some regards, for you to see the first two Muslim women elected to Congress had to be a big moment for you. It was in the same way that, you know, I, a lot of times these days I think about what my girls will see. And they're mm. still so young, so they don't watch the news. And so a lot of it is sort they of. They don't watch the news. They're five and three. Let's get them on that. <laughs> Let's we never, them to reality. We never have <laughs> the news on in my house, actually. Um, they're still so young, but I think, and you probably know this too, it's like when, when you become a parent, you suddenly start to see everything the way that you think your kids will see it. Mm-hmm. And Growing up, I didn't have I didn't have anyone who looked like me on TV. Right, I just didn't, you know. And I think sometimes about all the messages I get from other young brown women out there, other young Muslim women out there who, who write to me and ask questions. And I just I I think about that responsibility. Like that's important to me. It matters a lot to me, and I I feel a duty to them in some way. And I think about what my girls will see growing up, and I don't know how they're going to identify or what parts of them. They will hold dear or more important or value more than others. Like they're going to walk the paths they're going to walk, right? It's my job to kind of like keep them out of the brush on the side and hopefully (laughs) they just figure out where where it is they want to go. But I want those possibilities to be there for them. Like I want those chances to exist. And you said once, I think you were talking to Jade Magazine, you said my family comes from a part of the world where most women aren't typically given the chance to reach their full potential, which has to be heartbreaking, but also to see how far – We've come how, how far the faith has come, but yet how how far it still needs to go. Oh, it's got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I said that, I remember I was talking about my mother specifically because she is she is literally one of the most impressive people I've ever known. And I just think about if she had been given every opportunity and every advantage that I have been given over my life and over the years that I was raised – 
that woman would be running things right now. Mm-hmm. Like she would be in the highest office in the land. I have no doubt. Mm-hmm. She's. It, it's just now I see so, where you get it from. There's, there, there's, there's your dad being a journalist, <laughs> but I also I'm, I'm seeing this I've complexity here as well. There's just and it's still true. You know, the countries have come a long way. The faith has come a long way. There's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. A lot. You also said in that same article that. You were hired at ABC. You did a one-year stint as a fellow. I did. And you were working at Nightline. Yeah. And it happened to be right around the same time as 9-11. It was literally, I started my very first job as an adult professional, Three, I think it was three weeks, maybe three and a half weeks before 9-11. So you're working in television news. Yeah. You're a Muslim American yeah. and 9-11 happens. I was the only Muslim American on the staff too. Yeah. How do you was, process that? I, I didn't. I think I just... I um, that was the first time in my adult life when I really started to question, like, what is this faith? What what am I doing? If if these are the guys who feel like they have something in here they can grab onto, what am I doing as a part of this group? Mm-hmm. And the solace that I found in doing this work was, I think, what got me through it and what's kept me in it all these years. It was just, it was chaos. It was chaos in the rest of the country. It was chaos in, outside and it was chaos inside of me too. And I found I can center my days around the facts and around the information and about what I know to be true. And that is how I will keep putting one foot in front of the other and get through today. And then I will wake up tomorrow and do the same thing. And a lot of days, that is all that gets me through the day, I will be honest. <laughs> But I think it forced me to refocus on my faith and to reexamine my faith in a lot of ways and to get to that place where I am now, which is to say that you don't you don't get to speak for the faith. I know what it is to me and I know the truth. You're so much bolder, though, than a lot of women in the faith. What parts of it did you really cling to at that point when you started questioning whether or not this was the faith for you. You know what? I don't think that I'm any more bolder than any other women. I, most of the strength that I have in my faith has come from watching other women walk this same path mm. in places where it's a lot harder to do it. I have the benefit of living in a country where I get to freely practice my faith, right? And speak out and sit in front of a microphone and talk about the way I feel about it. There's a lot of women out there in the world who don't have the benefit of doing that and still get up every day and put one foot in front of the other and represent themselves yeah. with strength and compassion in their own communities. That's bravery. That's true courage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because their lives could be on the line. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you asked about what I hung on to in those times. I go back to the simplest things. You know, when things seem really, really complicated, I just go back to what are the things that guide me through every day? And it's usually something really simple, which is my parents raised me grounded in faith and love and compassion. And my mom always taught me there's nothing wrong with being a strong woman and being a compassionate woman. She's an empath, right? She feels everything. And I got that from her. And I feel everything. And that can feel like a weakness. That can feel like vulnerability. But there's nothing wrong with that. Vulnerability is strength. It took a while to get there. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. But it took a while for me to get there. I heard it on a TED Talk. I get all because, my wisdom from TED Talks. All of my wisdom, everything that they say in TED Talks is true, right? <laughs> I'm going to go with that. Hmm. But yeah, it's those basic things. And it's the basic things that guide me through my days now, right? Like I have, I literally have two things that get me through my days as a journalist. And it's, I bring this to every story. One is that everyone I talk to, I will treat your story in the same way that I would want mine treated. And I'm someone who's had a lot of assumptions made about her. I never want to put those assumptions on anyone else. So that's number one. And the second thing is that all children are my children. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter the way you look or the faith you practice or what you had to eat that day, your life circumstances. 
you get the benefit of the doubt every single time. Um, and I feel like if you keep things simple and you just keep going back to the things that are important to you, hopefully you can't do wrong. In closing, if I were to ask you, where do you think you'd be without your faith? How would you answer that? I don't think I would be as hopeful as I am. And I think hope is a hard thing sometimes. It's a lot easier to kind of be dismissive and be cynical and not care or pretend like you don't care. That actually doesn't require that much energy. Mm -hmm. But it takes a lot. You have to dig really deep from inside of you to put love out and to put hope out and to believe deep down that things are going to get better and that you can play some small role in making them better. I think you're playing a large role. Thank you. I try. I try. But I think my faith is a part of that. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is is the love that I get from my husband, from my parents, from my kids, from my sisters. I, that is a huge part of it. But my faith is a part of it, too. Amna, um, it's been such a pleasure. It's I really so enjoyed good. this. You made me cry. Not my mascaras. I know. I didn't even have any tissues for you in the studio. <laughs> and I was looking around and so I thought about rude. offering my sleeve. So but then rude. that's that would tacky. Be weird. That would be tacky. But I would have taken it. We would have posted it on Instagram. <laughs> that's what we do, right? <laughs> As always, we want to thank you so much for listening and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Next week's guest is former NBA star and Duke basketball legend, Jay Williams. And a big thanks to the team here at ABC Radio, Susie Liu, Joyce Alcantara, Brianna Montolvo, Louis Millman, Mike Dubusky, Josh Cohan, and Andrew Kalb. We'll see you next week.